0: I think back to all those manuscript evidence, even for uh, secular writers and classical authors, I recognize that they have no longer with us, and their spirits have left their body. And so, when it comes to the Word of God, uh, our original author is still very much alive and well. And because the scriptures are written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's alive, it's active. And it's powerful this morning. And so I'm going to ask if you have the scripture with you this morning, you turn to Luke, the fourth chapter with me. And as you're turning there, I want to share a few prayer requests with you this morning. First, uh, some praises. The Keiths family is going to be having a family reunion this afternoon here at the church. And we just celebrate them as a gift to this church as a family. Uh, Adam as a deacon, Michelle as a teacher, the boys as a faithful part of the youth group this morning. Also want to recognize the Whitmers are having a a reunion down in Chillicothe, and so uh, Pam and her daughter are here this morning to celebrate with us. Richard's down there getting ready for that uh, reunion there, so uh, we can offer that as a praise. And then uh, just two days from now, we have a 78th birthday coming up for Janie Fisher, and so we'll celebrate that. And then Phyllis Cornell, what a joy uh, to see her back with us this morning from her long period out west. Always good to have her here as part of this church family. And then as I look around, I see some others this morning that are guests and visitors, people we haven't seen in a while—and just want to welcome you uh, back with us this morning. Of course, we want to do—we do want to keep uh, our families down in the south in prayer, all along the eastern coast for Hurricane Dorian. Uh, we also want to be in prayer for all those from Odessa to Midland, Texas, in that. A terrible tragedy that took place yesterday with the the mass shooting there. Uh, Also this morning, uh, we need to remember Pat Ratliff. She's not with us this morning, but Miss Pat had several teeth removed this past week. And so she's going through some physical things we need to keep in prayer. Uh, And then uh, I was given a note this morning uh, to pray for Peggy Wright's great-grandson, Avery Hayes. Uh, One year's of age and possibly dealing with asthma and going to a lung specialist So we need to add little Avery Hayes to our our prayer list as well this morning. Before we go to the word this morning, would you bow once again and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we adore you. We come before you because you're the one that has given us breath and life and every good thing. Lord, there are times that this world just threatens to take our breath away not because of awe, not because of wonder, but because of shock or because of fear. And Father, we just confess before you this morning, we need you. Father, we come before you as sinners in need of cleansing. We come before you with a list of of misdeeds and misthoughts that Satan would love more than anything to confuse our hearts and minds. But you ask us to come and to exchange with you the burden that we carry for yours, And so we give you our burden, we take upon you our yoke once again today. And Father, it's much lighter because, first of all, it's a yoke of praise. We can give you all the glory, all the honor, for milestones reached as families and individuals in this life. We can thank you for answers to prayer. Uh, If we took the time, Lord, we could begin today, and I don't know when we'd finish, because you have been so good to us. Father, we're thankful but we also come this morning in need. Uh, Lord, we recognize that there are many in our congregation, many of them older, that are dealing with uh, dementia, with health concerns. Uh, Father, dealing with tests that are yet to come and surgeries even just weeks from now for those that we love. And I pray that you would give them courage and boldness to be your witnesses even through uh, the test and the surgery. But that, Father, you give us more cause to praise you because we can see your hand at work in their spirit, and in their words, in their life. You're our great protector. And Father, even though we might suffer from spiritual asthma, it is the fresh wind of your spirit that gives life to your word, that gives life to us as well. And so we come before you this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, <clears throat> I want to bring this third in the series on You versus Wild, and we use that image of Bear grills in the show to See how we face many wilderness in this life. And I want to talk today about strength and resistance training for the wilderness. You know, a few years ago, baseball's Tommy Lasorda was the, the pitch man uh, for advertising Slim Fast, the, the diet drink. And I used to love his commercial. I remember laughing at one of them because he said, I'm a strong man, but Linguini is much stronger. <laughs> uh, and I can resonate with that this morning. We may be strong, but it always seems like there is something or someone that is stronger something that attacks our faith and our humanity something that entices our emotions and it just kind of waylays even the best of intentions that we might have to be all in for christ and it's as our lord and savior jesus christ begins his ministry that we see him led into the desert by the spirit for a time of faith training and I think we could see from his life better than any other that at combat the temptations we face, we need to go through times of strength and endurance training. Now, a lot of different methods exist for strength and resistance training. In fact, uh, some of you, you you know that you build muscle by working against something. And you might have, from a physical therapist, or maybe you bought them online, those resistance bands that are red or blue or green and you work against those, and you know that the more you work against them, the more muscle mass you can build, and the faster you go, the more resistance you have in, in building that muscle mass. Some of you, I have rubber bands in my office, and you can start today if, if you need to start there as well. But I want you to look at the resistance training our Lord went through in, in Luke, the fourth chapter. Read with me, if you would, in this. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1. It's immediately after his, his baptism, And it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, he left the Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. You know, the Bible says in James 4, 7, that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. And yet before we dive into that, I thought it might be helpful to define some of the New Testament terms that we have that sometimes are a little bit confusing. And it's understandable why it is so. In the New Testament, the same Greek word is used for trial as it is for test and temptation. The specific meaning of the word, however, is always derived from the context of God's word. So there's there's an overlap, sometimes in understanding The Bible, though, says uh, at definite points there are trials. So what is a trial? A trial is an unpleasant experience that occurs naturally because we live in a fallen world. There are viruses that, that will populate the air. There is aging of the body. There are disappointments that we face with our friends. There are accidents on the job. There are hurricanes that that do strike and destroy. There are detours on the road. It's just a part of living in a fallen world in an everyday life. Sometimes the persecution by believers in the scripture is is also a trial also. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12 says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial that you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. In 2 Corinthians 8.2, Paul calls the Macedonians' poverty a trial. In Galatians 4.14, Paul says his illness was actually a trial to others that he was trying to serve. The second word is test. Now the difference in this is, is that a test is a divine challenge sent by God to develop our character and ultimately to bring out the best in us. You see, we really do believe Jeremiah 29 11, around here. God does work to give us prosperity and hope and a future. And I preached several times about the test of Scripture when God sent Abraham up Mount Moriah and asked him to sacrifice his son. Genesis 22 1 says, God tested Abraham. God's purpose has always been not to trip us up, but so we pass the test and we become mature and give a positive testimony to others as a result. A school principal may order a fire drill as a test. Now the purpose of a fire drill is not to burn the school down, right? It's to have the students recognized for their ability to vacate the building in the event of an actual fire. To prepare them for a potential disaster and the principal He knows it's a test. The fire department is told ahead of time it's a test, but many times the teachers don't know and the students don't know. And then there's the last word we have. How do trials and tests differ from temptation? Friends, a temptation is a Satan-initiated inducement to sin to deliberately trip us up or bring out the worst in us. Remember Satan's motive. It's always to steal, to kill and destroy. And the word tempt literally means to entice, to do wrong by a promise of pleasure or gain, to seduce, to allure into evil, or to persuade. Satan deliberately entices us to sin. His purpose, friends, is for you to disobey God, to neglect or reject His word and thereby to become weak. His desire is to entrap you in sin that will utterly defeat you and lead to death. 1 Corinthians 7.5 tells us that Satan tempts us because he's appealing to and counting on our lack of self-control. The scripture tells of a time when a husband and wife may separate for a time of prayer and that for a season. But it also says this, come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of a lack of self-control. His desire again, it is to lead us to compromise. And if I could boil all this down to one simple lesson, it would be live as Christ. Resist temptation, or it will empty you of the promise God has for you. It will, it will literally destroy you. I recognize there's a lot of things when you come to Scripture, they're, they're not necessarily leading to feel-good sermons, but this truly does in the end. Erwin Lutzer wrote a book called The Personal Holiness in Times of Temptation. And he says this, and I like this, Temptation is not a sin. It's a call to battle. And friends, God is going to challenge us to do some resistance training in our life. Even the Son of God went through a time of severe temptation. And did you see how his account began and ended? After 40 days, and through that time, it says, Satan came to tempt him. And at the end of our account, it said it left him until, what? A more opportune time. I think the first thing we need to recognize there on your, on your outline is this. We need to understand the source of our temptation. Understand the source. James would write in James 1.13, When tempted... No one should say that it's God who's tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. We embrace God's trials. We embrace God's test, but we resist Satan's temptations. And James is saying, don't blame God when you're tempted. The problem doesn't doesn't just go back to those alive in the first century because don't we live in a culture that excels at passing the buck or transferring the blame and responsibility? We're taught in many circles, you know, go ahead and blame God. Go ahead and blame your parents for everything wrong in your life. Say that society is responsible. I love the way the message paraphrase puts Proverbs 19.3. It says this, people ruin their lives by their own stupidity. So why does God always get blamed? I want you to notice something. Temptation, friends, it's not the sin. Acting on the temptation is the sin. If temptation were the sin, then Christ would not be perfect and we would have no hope of forgiveness. No hope that would come through the resurrection. I read about a woman once who walked up to a hunchbacked wrinkly man who had a a big grin on his face. He was sitting in an old rocking chair on the porch of a cabin, and she said to him, "I, I just couldn't notice how happy you look. What's your secret for a long and happy life? And he answered by saying, well, I smoke three packs of cigarettes a day. I drink a case of whiskey every week. I eat lots of fatty foods, and I never exercise. She said, whoa, wow, that is amazing. How old are you? 26, he said. (laughs) Friends, you reap what you you sow. We live by our own foolishness, by our own poor choices, and we find ruin. I'm no exception in this life. I, I love to to blame others too. I love to be the victim. I love to say, "You know what? The, the devil made me do it." But looking back on my life, a source of a large part of my heartbreaks, and I've had some, a large part of my struggles and my adversities, it's been me. The problem you see is not our external circumstances. The problem is our internal desires and the fact that we've never fully surrendered those To Jesus Christ. I want you to listen to how Dietrich Bonhoeffer described temptation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of those lost in the concentration camps of Nazi Germany. And I want you to see if this seems accurate to you. He wrote this. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination towards desire which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. And all at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. At that moment, God is quite unreal to us. I think that's pretty accurate, don't you? We scratch our heads when we hear of someone that has has crossed the line in a large way, and we think, how in the world could they ever do such a thing? But when we fall into sin, in our hearts and in our minds, it's almost as if we think, well, well, everybody else would fall if they were under my circumstances. Nobody could have withstood the tailor-made temptation, the pressure that I have been under, because at that moment, a secret Smoldering fire is kindled, and we allow God to seem a million miles away. But if we do resistance training, the next thing we need to do is we need to visualize the consequence. Visualize the consequence. What would have happened if Jesus had given in to any one of the three temptations that Satan laid before him? Give in to your hunger, to your appetite. Give in to the authority of of ruling all the kingdoms of the world, which he would do anyway. All those authorities, all those kingdoms, one day according to Paul in Philippians 2 are going to bow a knee before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Every tongue is going to confess on heaven and earth and below the earth. And a few measly earthly kingdoms were nothing compared to the scope of his reign and his authority. What would have happened If he would have said, I know my father said, I could jump from this and not a foot would be dashed against a stone. In those moments, he would have subjected himself to the authority of one who because of his pride had fallen from glory. What would happen if we choose to give in to the temptation to sin? What would the end result look like? James chapter 1, verse 15 reminds us, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, it gives birth to death. And that's, that's a result we seldom think about in the heat of the moment. It may be the rush rather you get from stealing something in a store and, and not getting caught. It might be the euphoria you feel when when you bully around a smaller classmate or you bully around a mild-mannered, bald preacher sometimes. It might be the satisfaction you experience when when you lie and you call in the boss to the boss and say, you know, I don't feel so good today. Uh, I think I'm coming down with the flu and it's going around. I think you'd be better off if I just stayed home. And you smile and you roll over and, and you go back to sleep. Maybe it's the thrill you feel when that person of the opposite sex shows you some attention. And you long for the day when when you could have some private time alone. A number of years ago, a couple of buddies decided they were going to undertake an an unusual exercise. They, They talked about it together and they decided they would do it over the course of a week. They took a piece of paper and they asked the question, who would be negatively affected if we were to have a moral failure in our life? And they sat there together and they wrote down a list, you know, of several things. And they thought, well, that just about covers it, but, you know, we're going to do this for a week. The next day they got up and every one of them came up with five more names or five more groups of people on the list. You know, my point is after a while, you, you start to look at this massive list, at the top of which is God. And then it's your family. And then it's your closest friends. And it just goes on and on. You begin to realize the ripple effects that giving into temptation that sin has within your life for years to come. And while that may not be the highest form of motivation, friends, to simply visualize the consequence and be afraid, fear is healthy if it keeps you on the narrow path. And don't ever underestimate the value of fellowship in the church. Friends, Christ died for the church. Don't ever underestimate the value of having close Christian friends and confidence that you can pray with. Others that will hold you accountable. Because resistance training, it's always done best with others. That's why we're constantly challenging you. Get involved in a Bible study. You know, they're starting up again next week on on the evenings here at the church. If you've got kids... Or grandkids, bring them to IAH so they can do some resistance training together. Come to buy bio- home care groups that we have. Just get involved with groups. If you're familiar with weightlifting, you know that the bench press is one of the most popular forms of resistance training. And you might have heard of the tragedy that happened to the University of Southern California running back Stephon Johnson. He was bench pressing 275 pounds and His hand slipped on the bar and it fell and crushed his neck. He literally suffered a crushed neck and a larynx. It took seven hours to repair his vocal cords and his throat so that he could even breathe because there was no spotter. There was no teammate there that could catch it when it slipped from his hand. Resistance training is best done when you do it with other Christians, especially of the same gender. And then if you do it and you slip, they can keep you from being suffocated. Visualize what would happen if in time you continued to act on your temptation. Some of you recognize the name of Russ Blowers. Russ preached for over 50 years in Indianapolis. And at his retirement, somebody asked him, you know, what's been your greatest accomplishment in 50 years of ministry? And he said this, my greatest accomplishment as a minister was... I never had to walk into my children's bedroom and explain why I'd been unfaithful to their mother. Obviously, Russ had visualized the consequences and he'd done a lot of resistance training. James 1.4 again says, Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. Dragged away is, is a hunting term. It means to draw animals out for the kill. Just like you might lay some food out to attract an animal or to draw it down a trail into a trap that catches it, like catching skunks, which uh, Robert is expert at. So if any of you guys have a skunk you want taken care of, call Robert Seaver, okay? Um, or, or, or groundhogs or possums. I mean, he's, he's really good at it. And then the term enticed is one that I can resonate with. Enticed is a fishing term. It's putting the right bait out, and believe me, Satan knows how to change the bait so that you'll catch the hook. It looks innocent. It doesn't look like it'll cause you pain, but buried deep within it is a barb that will cost you. Ask yourself this question. If I stay on the path that I'm on right now, where is it going to lead me a week from now? Where is it going to lead me a month from now, a year from now? And, and, and by giving into this sin, is it drawing me closer in my relationship to the Lord? Or is it taking me further away? First Peter, again, chapter 5, verse 8 says this. Be self-controlled and be alert because your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. That's why we need resistance training. So we can resist Satan. And here at the start of Jesus' ministry, to face the temptations that Satan lay before him, in the months to come, the temptation would increase. The pull of the crowd, the pull of his closest disciples would increase. The burden upon his shoulders of the sin and the weight of the world would increase, so much so that he would sweat drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. And under the crushing weight, he would pray, Father, if there's another way, please. But because the muscles had been formed, he could say, but it's not my will. It's yours that will be done. And he went to the cross for you and me. Being a Christian is being in a position of courage. Being a Christian is being in a a position of boldness and of strength. Because we serve one who is, as the song said, an awesome God full of might and power. One fellow once diagrammed the process of sin, and he, he broke it down into his stages, and it first begins with desire. Now, there are healthy desires or appropriate things, but, but we have evil desires too. It's for something that you shouldn't do or something that you shouldn't have. And it's a temptation, but if you don't put the brakes on, it moves to the next stage, which is deception. You lie to yourself and you begin to deceive yourself into thinking it's not that big a deal. A little white lie won't hurt anything. And so you pad your expense account or you change your taxes a little bit for your benefit or you say, you know what, it's just a casual conversation. It's not going anywhere. Or it's just a casual drink with coworkers after lunch. I can quit whenever I want. And in time, we deceive ourselves into buying into a lie. And the next stage, the lie, the deception moves on to design. And that's literally when you, within your mind, start to make a plan. You begin to form a a scheme, a way to cover up whatever it is you're, you're going to do. Whether it's covering up a gambling debt by taking money out of the till at work. It may be a plot to run into a certain person at a certain place at a certain time and pretend that it's, it's unintentional. It could be designing a plan to expose the shortcomings of another person so that you look good. Maybe to your boss so that you get the promotion. And you could say, oh, I, w- I would never do anything like that. But friends, if we're not careful, never becomes maybe. And maybe leads us to the next step, which is actually disobedience and we've all been there we all sin we all fall short we all cross that line and and the bad news is is that typically when you cross that line there's no bolt of lightning out of the sky that lands you know five inches from you to scare you back to doing the right thing usually what happens is is that euphoria of i just got away with that and so we're tempted to to do it again and again And in your heart, that response becomes easier. Maybe it's even fun. And soon, any feelings of guilt dissipate, which leads to the final stage, and and that's death. The wages of sin itself. I know you've probably seen it as well as I have growing up. that, That little poem, sow a thought, reap a deed. Sow a deed, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny death or life i've always liked the story of the old aging priest in the final years of his long life and ministry he was asked by a young clergyman he said father uh, when will i stop being bothered by the lust of the flesh and the priest replied son i wouldn't trust myself until i had been buried for three days <laughs> the message paraphrases this passage this way In James 1.14, the temptation to give in to evil comes from us and us only. We have no one to blame but the leering, seducing flare-up of our own lust. And lust gets pregnant, has a baby, sin. And sin grows up to adulthood and becomes the real killer. Here's the last thing on your outline. There's one more helpful way to resist temptation. And that's to see yourself as God sees you there in the wilderness for 40 days, what do you think Jesus was doing? The same thing he did every time he went to a mountain by himself. The same thing he did when he woke up early and withdrew from the disciples for 40 days. He's praying. He's building his relationship with the Heavenly Father so that when Satan's temptation comes along, he remembers, you're not my dad. I have a Heavenly Father. And I will not. Betray Him. Do you know your Father? James chapter 1, verse 16 says this. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who doesn't change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all that He created coming through this storm that's coming up here and and often you'll hear of how insurance policies will be challenged because of acts of God. You know, anything horrific that happens, hurricanes, lightning, floods, you name it, just because they're acts of God, God gets blamed for it. But James paints a very different picture. He says every good and perfect gift is from heaven. It's from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights God only wants, friends, what is best for you. He created you. He formed you. He calls you his son and daughter. He knows what you need. And James says that he is consistent. When other people in your world change their mind, change their heart, change their lifestyle, God does not change. In other words, he can be trusted. And he's always the God of light. He's not some chameleon lurking in the shadows just waiting for you to trip up, just waiting to bring down the hammer of judgment within your life. He's not like the boss that you're scared to say something to you for the fear of, of, of your future potential or possibilities. Listen again, verse 18. He chose, he decided in his heart before the creation of this world to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruit of all that he created. Friends, that word first fruit to a Jewish audience would immediately bring up a special appreciation and an understanding from Scripture. You see, back in the Old Testament, it said in Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. And back then, when a farmer would pull in his harvest, their source of income, at that moment, they had two options. They could pay all their bills and then give God their leftovers, or they could pay God off the top. And when you look at what happened within their lives, they chose most often to give that concept of 10%. Now, my message is not about giving today. Don't don't misunderstand me. My message truly, though, is about not handing to God your leftovers. You don't give God the bottom of the barrel. You give Him your first and your best Don't shortchange the Lord. In this passage, James is using this generous example and a spiritual parallel, and he's saying, if you've experienced this amazing grace you sing about, if if, if you've experienced this unfailing love that you're talking about as a follower of Christ, if you have been born again in God's sight, you are his first fruit. You're his first, and you're his best. You are the very highest and finest of all of God's creation in the entire universe. And that begs the question of everyone here today. Do you believe what God says about you and your identity? Do you believe that through spiritual rebirth in Christ, God sees you as his own? Then James says to you, in verse 16, don't be deceived. The Bible says we're to flee from evil. And sometimes the problem for us is we flee from evil, but we leave a forwarding address. Paul said in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen 13, that passage that we have talked about about three weeks ago, no temptation has seized you except what's common to man. And, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, and you will be, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. You'll never face a temptation that God will not either give you an escape or the strength to handle it. I want to close this morning by telling you a story that a brother in the ministry, Dave Stone, tells about a time he and his family went on vacation to Florida, actually. Uh, down in a place south of Sarasota, Florida. It was beautiful. They were right on the Gulf of Mexico. They had a fantastic week. And toward the end of their time there, he he asked his daughter, Sadie, would you take some pictures at sunset of me and your brother as we're out fishing in the ocean? He thought that that'll be really cool, you know. Great screensaver for the computer, great thing to share in the future. Father and son sharing this special time together. And they'd fished all week, and he thought a picture would cement those memories in his mind. And so Sadie took some photos at dusk, and then she went back inside. But Dave and his son uh, were having so much fun, they stayed out and they kept on fishing. Well, after some time, he wasn't getting any nibbles, any bites, and so he decided he would wade out a little bit deeper into the ocean. Probably about waist high, and and every time a wave came in, he would jump with the wave to kind of stay uh, above water. And all of a sudden, he felt this bump on the back of his leg and it felt like a big smooth rock had hit him and and he immediately thought his son was goofing off and had picked up a rock and and thrown it towards him and so he said did did you just throw a rock at me and his son said no dad and then he realized in that instant there hadn't been a splash and he said to his son get out now his heart was pounding and he and his son they were out of the water in three seconds time And he later spoke with a guy that lived there and he said, you know, hey, I was out with my son fishing uh, after dusk the other night, and I got bumped by something when I was fishing. And the guy asked him, well, was it during the day? He said, well, not really, why do you ask? He said, well, as it's dusk and getting dark, uh, the bull sharks start to come in from out in the deeper water. He said, you you weren't fishing in deeper water or out in the water, were you? He said, well, I was up to my, my waist, my son was up to his knees, He said, well, the bull sharks come in at night, and they're aggressive because you're in their territory. Now, what would you think of Dave if the next night he said, son, let's go back out fishing? And he went back out waist deep or knee deep in the water after dark. Would you think it would be wise of him to tell his daughter, hey, Sadie, can you take some pictures of us us fishing at dusk? The only thing they would have been good at at that point, it would have looked nice on his obituary probably afterwards. He didn't go back to the same place, in fact, he didn't go back in the water at all after that encounter because he didn't want to get close to something that was so dangerous. And how I wish that we treated temptation the same way. Some of you, if I were to take a snap of a picture, it would look so serene. You got life together, and yet you're the only one that knows the bumps. You're the only one that feels the bull-nosed shark of temptation and struggles lurking beneath the surface of the water. The picture looks fine, but in your heart of hearts, you know that you're dabbling with something against which you have no control. You know that any of the following whether it's an adulterous affair, whether it's a ruined reputation, a divisive spirit, a drunk driving accident, whether it's addiction to drugs, whether it's a lying tongue, eternally speaking, they're far much worse than a shark attack. And maybe you feel like the sun's setting and it's late and you're in too deep. But friends, it's time for you to know the one who can calm the seas, the one who could reach in and lift you out of deep water. And I, and I wish you would, as you're being bumped by the temptation of this world, reach to him if you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, then you are someone that needs to be born again. You're his child, and if you're not, you could be. We're going to worship now. We're going to sing a song to conclude this service this morning as a time of dedication and invitation. And as we sing, I just want to ask those of you that are believers in Christ, use this as a time to recommit yourself to him. To say, "I, I... And if you honestly say, I don't have any area I struggle with, uh, I know honesty is probably one of them, because every single one of us struggle with these things in our life. No one is immune, no one is exempt, because Satan wants to sift you like weed. So I'm going to ask that you stay with me now, and just for these next few minutes, we're going to sing this last song, and if you have a need within your heart, get right with your Heavenly Father. Maybe it's to accept him as your Lord and Savior for the first time. Maybe it's time to accept that hand and be lifted out of the water of your sin and placed on his narrow path. But whatever your decision, friend, I want you to come as we sing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for being a God that from your vantage point, we can't see what's beneath the surface of this world. But not only can you see it, you walk through it. You took the bump of the shark. You took the teeth of the beast. In your flesh, you allowed yourself to be beaten, tortured, crucified. You allowed yourself to die because of the stain and the guilt and the burden of our sins. But Father, death could not hold you the grave could not keep you and when you burst through the surface father you show us that forgiveness is real that life is possible that every promise you ever made from old to new testament from the time of prophets to the time of of you in the flesh every promise is real Father, there's somebody here this morning that is is hungry for that promise. There's a lot of scars in this room because we've all taken the bait. We've all had to have the hooks removed. And those scars are a reminder of how you've reached in and pulled us out. Lord, we would rather have one day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. Would you please, by your spirit, lead someone to choose that this day? And I pray this in Jesus' name.